Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits for the veteran and the newcomer alike. I am Gabe. I am a wine professional working with Wine and Spirits Education. And I am Michael, a former wine beer salesman as well as former vineyard worker who is very enthusiastic about all things wine, beer, and spirits. And today, what are we going to be talking about, Gabe? Well, today we are enthusiastic about the wine growing region, Priorat, located in Catalonia, Spain. And what made us enthusiastic in wanting to do this? Because you actually were the one that brought up wanting to do an episode on Priorat. Yeah, so, well, my logic behind it was actually uh, originally we had done Rioja as our topic. And then I thought, well, everybody kind of already knows about Rioja. What's one of the ones that you don't hear talked about as much in Spain? And Priorat is currently the rising star, I guess you could say, of the country. And so I thought it'd be fun to delve into that and maybe give you, the listener, some knowledge about the country that you didn't know before. Not to mention an amazing type of drink, an yes. amazing type of wine that you get to try. It's actually surprising that Priorat isn't more well-known. Yeah. Well, part of that might be the price point, but we'll get into that later on in the episode. But for now, just as a brief overview for you, we do have, as I said, Priorat located in Catalonia, Spain. If you don't know, Catalonia is technically an autonomous region within Spain. They have their own dialect of Spanish that they speak and everything. Priorat is located at its closest point, about 13 kilometers from the Mediterranean Sea. Priorat is one of two DOC slash DOQ, DOQ being the Catalonian for Denominacio de Origen Qualificada, in the country of Spain. Under the protected designations of origin under Spanish wine law, these are the two highest qualifications you can get in terms of quality control. Priorat is primarily a red producing region. This is what they are gaining the notoriety for and the reputation for. There is also a very small amount of white and rosé wines produced here, but last I looked, white vines account for only about 4% of the total production of the country. Yeah. So, overwhelming majority is going to be red. Priorat includes 12 grape-growing villages slash zones uh, and about 2,000 hectares under vines. And as I kind of mentioned already, the real claim to fame here is premium wine production. But before we get into all that, Michael, how did we get here? Well, the exact origins of winemaking in Priorat are actually pretty unknown, and it was far before the arrival of who would be basically the flagship bearers, or mm -hmm. the, the major contributors to the styles and the practices inside of Catalonia. But it's mostly thought that the Romans were the ones that were there. Yeah, we so, do know they were in the Iberian Peninsula, at least, at yeah. the time. So they had a couple of different types of wines that they would have done there. This is a common practice by the Romans where everywhere they went, they would have their garrisons and their garrisons would have vineyards. But the area didn't stay under them for very long and wine went into decline during their decline. So we had to have some other people show up. Those people ended up being the Carthusian monks. Yes. Now, I forget which episode it was that we talked about chartreuse, but chartreuse originates in the Chartreuse Mountains and was also created by these people. That was, uh, for you, the listener, the liqueur versus liquor episode and oh. the differentiation between those two. That's it's very important distinction to be able to make yes. when talking about various types of drink. 
But in any case, uh, those Carthusian monks coming from the Chartreuse Mountains inside of France, known for their contributions to Burgundy and to the history of France in general, ended up making their way down to Catalonia at some point in order to establish a few monasteries there, specifically in the 12th century. So when they got there, they established Cartosia de Scala Dei, translating roughly to the Convent of the Holy Cross, although they did have an alternate name, the Monastery of the Ladder of God. This is a still-existing monastery, and it is now a museum for the purposes of being able to see what their lifestyle was and all that stuff. Did you see the little story behind the Ladder of God thing? No, I didn't actually. So that actually came from the king who sent some knights to this little village at the time in order to establish a new monastery. They came back saying that they had seen, or the villagers, I believe, told them that they had seen this tree that had angels ascending and descending, basically like Jacob's Ladder yeah, from the Bible. Just- Going straight into it. Yeah, and so that's where that name came from. Interesting. Yeah. And this was before the wine was in the region. Correct, yeah. So this is what led the monks to be like, oh, holy land, let's go there. (laughs) Let's go there and start doing some stuff. Yeah. So I guess after discovering this holy land, they decided that they wanted to go ahead and establish their monastery, and then they began to tend vineyards. Now, they are known for solitude, for hard work. It's the reason why they ended up being so effective in Burgundy was their record keeping mm-hmm. on just different types of places. And these guys were basically known for establishing our current practices for understanding terroir. Uh, at the time, it was called something different in Burgundy, and you can discover that in our Burgundy episode. Yes. Uh, but for this place, for Catalonia, and specifically in Priorat, they ended up being the first people to really come from the understanding of terroir in some respect in order to steward the unique features that this area has. Yeah. And we'll be discussing those unique features in a later segment. But the self-sustaining Carthusians, as they established these vineyards, started to rise in the popularity. It became something that was exported. It was very much so connected in with the royals, with high-ranking members of the church, Everybody wanted to get their hands on the wines that they were making out of this region. And that region became known as Priorat, which I believe you actually found out why it's called Priorat. Yeah, so in the monastery, there is a role called the prior. The prior was very high-ranking in the monastery and basically acted almost as like a feudal landlord over the surrounding villages. And the prior then became Priorat, and that's where the name came from. I mean, it makes sense. And a yeah. lot of like a, a lot of those old names end up being that thing like Provence, France. It's literally named that because it was the first place that the Romans conquered. So it was just the Providence. It's just like simple stuff like that that ends up being these super prestigious regions. It's just whoever conquered it or ruled over it. <laughs> or ruled over it, in this case, uh, being the, the prior. But they did a really good job. They were very organized. They were very dedicated to their craft. And because of their dedication to their craft, to these practices, they were able to sustain it through not one but three wars and the endemic of phylloxera. So that would have been the War of Spanish Succession, the Peninsular War, and the Spanish Civil War that they were able to survive through. What is interesting, though, is that in 1835, the state appropriated and then distributed the vineyards that were there. 
it's interesting because they were still being stewarded by them, if I'm not mistaken. Well, um, they were right. sold to to landowners, basically, yeah. who I think some of them still continue to employ the monks, but a lot of it also just went to fully privatized care yeah. until phylloxera hit. Yeah. But then the records that they were keeping, as far as uh, Carthusians were concerned, is what allowed it to start to gain traction again, especially mm-hmm. throughout the beginning of like the 50s. We also, though, along that vein, have wine cooperatives and grape growers to thank for the revitalization because they were the ones who picked up that knowledge and said, all right, let's grow the grapes again. And those cooperatives, some of them are still in effect today. Which is an interesting transition because throughout all of that time from the 12th century all the way up until the 19th century, what defined part of the survivability of the region was the ties that the Carthusians had with the church and with royalty. Mm -hmm. That was why they were avoided in some circumstances or why they were able to get a little bit of a boost here and there. Yeah. So then when that transition ends up happening where it's like, no, these are just the actual farmers, the actual landowners, the actual people who are passionate about the site, who aren't playing that game, being recognized by the government and organizing themselves in order to, again, bring out the beauty of the region. Yeah. And speaking of recognition, the Priorat Dio, so not the DOQ, but the Dio, which is just Denominacion de Origin was established and officialized in 1954. And then the DOQ was instituted by the Catalan government in 2000. However, it was not recognized as a DOQ slash DOC by the national Spanish government until 2009. Wow. Which was very weird and confusing way of doing it. I didn't go too into the politics behind that, but as we all know, state governments tend to be more efficient at you know local ordinances than federal recognition of those same ordinances in some cases so i'm sure there was also probably pushback from rioja oh i'm sure (laughs) i mean because you have basically this area it's the only area outside of chateauneuf de pop that is known for making world-class garnacha so i can understand why they they felt a little threatened yes yeah and that's the thing with these world-class wines As we've discussed before in the podcast, a lot of that is going to come down to understanding the terroir. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Gabe, I know that you have a lot (laughs) of knowledge about the terroir of the region. I was surprised by the level of misinformation that I found, but let's let's kind of get into the the terroir of Priorat in Catalonia. Yeah, so uh, let's get into one of the myths that you told me before we started recording earlier, which is that... A lot of places seem to think this region has a Mediterranean climate. Yeah. Um, which I, I guess I get because it's only 13 kilometers from the Mediterranean Sea. It makes sense if you're just looking at like a top-down map of Spain exactly. without a, a topographical and understanding. M- most of Spain, well, many parts of Spain are Mediterranean climate. So I guess I kind of get the deduction there, but it's not it's not a good inference to make. So well, but that's the thing. Why would if it's an inference, if it's a deduction like that you're making based on looking at a flat map? Yeah, maybe you don't actually know the area and you shouldn't be talking about it. I I don't disagree. Yeah. But, you know, we don't throw shade on this podcast. Remember, (laughs) I keep it's it's not shade. It's just, you know, you're probably smart. Use proper procedure when doing research. Yeah, you you would hope at least so. The climate here is actually continental, specifically a hot continental climate. 
Now, the reason that we have a continental climate being this close to the ocean is that we have a bunch of mountain ranges that go through this part of Spain. And here in particular, we have the Sierra and Monstant valleys and their corresponding mountain ranges that make up the vineyard space here. And those mountain ranges basically act as rain shields and climate shields from a lot of the outside influence from the ocean and whatnot. This means also, since these are vines being planted in valleys, that a lot of these slopes are very steep. Machine harvesting is basically impossible here. Most grapes are going to be hand harvested. That goes into the prestige of the region partially. Something to take note of. I actually found like accounts of people like trying to get to vineyards and it's like, oh, well, you can take your car up to here. Exactly. And then you can maybe bike from here. Mm -hmm. But once you get to this place, like it's a scramble. Yeah. I mean, some of them have had to be terraced because they're so steep. Oh, my God. So, yeah, we're 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 in a very steep uh, grade here for most vineyards. Now, back to the continental climate. If you don't know specifically what that means, here in Priorat, that means that we are going to have pretty long and, again, hot summers. The flip side of that is that winters are pretty harsh compared to the summers. They're not like the Arctic, don't get me wrong, but winters do get fairly cold here. That introduces some risk of frost, spring Mm -hmm. frost. There is a little bit of risk of hail as well. However, the most common climate problem in Priorat is drought. Because of these long, hot summers, there is very low rainfall here. Gosh, and I would imagine that trying to irrigate these vineyards would be hell. Yeah, uh, they don't irrigate these vineyards. they couldn't. Yeah. So another climate factor is that the valleys allow for very cold winds from the north to blow through. We also have the Mistral, if you're familiar with French wine regions you do know that the mistral you probably know at least that the mistral blows through the rhone valley very strong winds and this carries warmth from the east into priorat so that introduces a kind of a constant cooling effect on the vines that helps tamp down on too much moisture buildup and also cools them down in these long hot summers to prevent over ripening or ripening too quickly altitude also plays a large part in what grapes are grown where and site selection because we are on these steep slopes you have very in some cases drastic temperature differences between the top of a mountain slope and the bottom of that slope some of the higher areas can reach up to 700 meters here and they're going to be much cooler then we get into what is probably the most famous aspect of the terroir of Priorat and that is going to be its soil composition. In Priorat, we have a about 50 centimeter slash 19 inch thick topsoil that is made of black slate and quartz. This is called Licorea soil. Now, if any of you have listened to our like terroir episode where we talk about some soil types, mm-hmm. this is where you start getting excited. Yeah. <laughs> so... Why this soil is so unique and also essential to the way Priorat wines taste and how these wines are made and the grapes that are grown here is the slate and the quartz are dark. Again, they're they're black slate and quartz, so they retain heat. However, the quartz reflects. It's a reflective rock. And so that reflects sunlight back onto the plant, which helps it photosynthesize more, which is great for the plant. 
It's what allows for those pyrazines to be reduced both before and after the pigmentation is turning. So it's very important for producing a wine that doesn't have that many green notes. Yes. The soil is also, because it's so stony and rocky, very free draining, which means you do not have standing water. It also means that the roots have to burrow a lot deeper to get to that water. As you can probably guess, this soil is also very poor nutrient-wise, so they have to also go down for nutrients. So you have roots that are going like five to six meters deep just to get to water and nutrients. So that really anchors the plants. It makes them work really hard to produce really high-quality grapes. Um, If you don't know a lot about grape growing, one thing that might seem counterintuitive to wine production is that grape vines actually need a decent amount of stress in order to produce really good wine. And because this area is so arid and hot and dry, the vines have to work really hard. And that really shows in the grapes that are produced. And it's actually interesting. So in order to steward these sites, because obviously they're very hard to get to, but they are such high quality. You already have lower yields because of how hard the vines are having to work, but you also Mm -hmm. have smaller spaces. Yeah. So you can't actually plant like you would in other types of vineyards that have more accessibility and more spacing. And they're not really having to worry so much about mildew or anything like that because of how dry it is. So they employ a type of planting that is called goblet training. Mm -hmm. So goblet training is, well, the clue is in the name. Uh, It is basically a method of training the vines so that the grape growing part of the plant is shaped like a goblet going upward. This allows them to plant very densely while still encouraging all that smaller yield. Yeah. So you have maximum exposure to sunlight. You have improved air circulation underneath the vines, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, decreases the risk of disease. You also have a much more efficient use of the space because of how hard it is to get to sites. Exactly. And also the increased fruit quality. The grapes, uh, they have a greater concentration of tannins in that case, as well as the other flavors that are going to be in there in concert with how hard those vines are having to work. Yeah. So now the types of grapes themselves that they're going to be training, we've mentioned one of them. Why don't we move on to that? Yeah. So as I already said, you're primarily in Priorat dealing with red grapes. So I will mention the white grapes here in a second, but I'm not really going to talk about them very much. Under Priorat law, there are permitted grapes and then there are recommended grapes. The recommended grapes are the primary grapes that are going to be known in the region. These are Grenache and Carignan. Now, for purposes of this episode, I am now going to be calling Grenache Garnacha, because that is what it is called here. And I'm going to be calling Carignan Carignana. Uh, Another name that you might hear, which is the indigenous name for Carignana, is Samso, but a lot of people also use Carignana. Did now, you ever figure out the pronunciation for Garnacha in the in the local? Um, it's like Garnacha. It's G A R N A T X A, and I just I couldn't quite get it on my tongue properly. It's called also Garnacha Tinta as well here sometimes, but a lot of people will just say Garnacha. Mm-hmm. If you don't know about these grapes, Garnacha is red fruit forward. As Michael said earlier, it is one of the primary grapes in Chateauneuf du Pope. Also, kind of the Southern Rhone region in general is very well known for its Grenache-based wines. But for Priorat, 
we're looking at a grape that is going to be kind of medium on the tannin scale and decent in acid, but able to provide really punchy red fruit profile and a decent amount of sugar, which bumps up that alcohol content. Carnignana is going to be more black fruits, also some herbaceous notes coming in, and that is going to have a higher tannin profile and it's going to give more structure. It's kind of like a Merlot Cabernet Sauvignon situation, although these grapes are flavor profile-wise very different from those grapes, so do not think of this as a one-to-one. But the concept of the pairing of the two, one giving structure to the other, and the way that they work just works very well together. These are the primary, and again, the recommended grapes that you grow here from the regulating body over Priorat. And Michael, I believe you had the percentage breakdown of the vines that are under planting for these, right? It really is just a remarkable amount of plantings that they have. You have about 60 to 70% of the place being planted Garnacha and only about 10 to 20% being Carnina. The rest is an assortment of different types of reds. I think that you have more information on this though. I do. Yeah. So also permitted. So these are your permitted grapes. Um, And I do want to say the reason that Grenache and Carnignana are the, or Garnacha, excuse me, and Carnignana are the recommended grapes is because these are indigenous grapes to the area. All these other grapes that I'm about to talk about were imported and do show well, but Priorat, as we'll get into here in a second, is trying really hard to be as Priorat as possible, if I can put it that way. Authentic. I mean, exactly. There's something to be said about that. It's also like Garnacha or Grenache. It's not hard to get a good Grenache. Mm-hmm. It is hard to get an excellent Grenache. Correct. Normally, it's a more um, easy drinking, younger style wine. But it doesn't need to be. It can be so excellent. Mm-hmm. And and this climate is what allows it to do that. Exactly. Yeah. So it makes sense that they're trying to make that concerted effort. But what are some of the other ones that you can grow here? So your permitted varieties are Harry Grenache. And yes, that is actually the name. I, I don't remember the Spanish or uh, the excuse me the Catalan name off the top of my head, but there is an indigenous name for it. I got like ten different oh listen double takes on that if, because I was just like, there's no way somebody did a yeah. typo. Somebody did a typo just over and over. Yeah, no, and the reason it's called hairy Grenache is the leaves have little filaments on the bottom of them. That's where the hairy came from, which apparently really irritates the skin. Oh, I'd imagine so. We also have Tempranillo, which you'll probably be familiar with from particularly Rioja, but also the rest of Spain. We have our international varieties, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Syrah. We also, and this surprised me, have Pinot Noir and Cap Franc being grown here. I can almost guarantee you these are being grown at those higher altitude, cooler sites because... You would have to. I I don't know how you grow particularly Pinot in that environment. burst. Yeah. There is effort being done to grow those grapes, but the one that I've seen the most in terms of uh, people talking about its potential is Syrah out of these. A lot of these other grapes are going to be put into blends. Um, A lot of them also do make varietal wines from some of the producers in the region, but again, these are not the focus of the region. I'd be interested in a Petit Bordeaux from the from the area. Ooh, that'd be good. Yeah. That'd be very good. Oh no, there there are a couple. Yeah. Very small. But, yeah, you know. uh, I'm sure it's, yeah, very small plantings of those. For our white grapes, and again, I'm just going to kind of gloss over these real quick, but so you know if you see them on a label, we have Garnacha Blanca. So yes, there's yet another Grenache here. Macabeu, or Macabeo, if you know it by that name. We have Pedro Jimenez, Chenin Blanc, 
Muscat of Alexandria, and Muscat Blanc à Petit Grand, Zareo, and Picapole. And you might be familiar with those as well from Sherry and France. A lot of these are also grapes that are grown elsewhere. These Muscat grapes are going to be used for some fortified wines. But that's the thing. There's not a there's not a real focus on white wine in the area. No. Like with your reds, like they, I said, it's like four percent of production is going towards white. Exactly, because yeah. the reds they have like aging potential. Mm-hmm. You know, you you can drink some of these young, but they're making a concerted effort for these guys to be aged. All of the white wines coming out of the area, they're crisp, they're fresh, going to be for early drinking. None of them are really supposed to be much more than a pairing as an aperitif, and. Just one quick thing to point out before we move on to the laws and labeling terms is that there is a large and growing emphasis on sustainable agriculture and also organic agriculture in the we region. We love to see it. And this is a great region for it because it's dry, so you really don't have rot pressure like we have here in Virginia threatening to kill all your grapes, right? So it's a really good region for this more sustainable bent on agriculture. The more that's actually done, the more that I feel encouraged. Yeah. You know, and it's sometimes it's hit or miss, but, you know, the sustainable practicing. Well, and and in Priorat. It's a hit. It's a hit. It's a hit. Uh, (laughs) And let's talk about why it's a hit, because here is where things really start to take shape from the history to the terroir. How is Priorat handling all this to give themselves this really premium reputation? So. The number one thing that I think is the contributing factor is because of this hard to grow in climate and the difficulty and the work and the labor that goes into these grapes, there's already very stringent vineyard yields imposed on growers in the region. The max yield is six tons or about 45 hectoliters per hectare. Now, it's important to note when we're talking about yield caps, these are not like quotas. It's not you have to have this much. It's actually it's, the opposite. It, it's if you're approaching that, that's normally not great. Yeah. Because it is literally it's a maximum. Yeah. That you are allowed. They are trying to make sure that you're not overproducing because of the quality decline that happens when a place overproduces. Correct. So and- that's that's the way that these laws and these limits are approached. It's mm-hmm. making sure you don't approach that. Yeah. And the numbers I just gave you for reds, for whites, it is 8 tons or 60, about 60 hectoliters per hectare. If you're not aware of what a hectare and a hectoliter are, a hectare is 100 heirs. It's about 2.7 something acres. I don't remember. It's a little over double. And then it's like a it's a squared measurement. Exactly. It's 100 meters by 100 meters square. And hectoliters are just 100 liters. So hopefully that gives you more an idea of what I'm talking about. Um, These are very common terms for wine production. That's why I'm using them. Definitely want to include those in our terminology section. (laughs) Yes. Yes, for sure. Because they just throw that out there and they expect you to know what they're talking about. They're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Hectoliters. Hectares. And we're like, I I know an acre. Yeah. (laughs) Is that the same thing? No, it's not. (laughs) No, it's not. So as Michael said, these are maximum yields. The actual yields are often very much below this. So, for example, in 2008, the average was 16 hectoliters per hectare. So that is like a third, almost a third of what we were talking about for the maximum. For comparison, in Poliac, in Bordeaux, in the same year, we had an average of 43.8 hectoliters per hectare. Oh, my. So this just goes to show you how hard it is to get 
grapes to really grow well here. That also means that these grapes are going to be concentrated and they're going to be full of flavor and goodness. Yeah. On average, from what I saw, we have about five tons of grapes being produced, which translates to about 14,000 hectoliters for the country annually. As for the structure of the wines that are being produced, you mentioned the fact that there was uh, increased alcohol content because of the fact that Garnacha is able to mm-hmm. uh, to have that kind of like higher sugar content. Correct. What are some of the requirements for that? Well, uh, and before I answer your question, I do just want to also say that the environment itself is going to produce a higher alcohol wine because hotter regions, the grapes get riper and that ups your sugar levels and upping sugar levels means direct conversion from the yeast during fermentation to alcohol, right? So the minimum you are permitted to get that pre-rot DOQ on your bottle is 13.5. And for reds, for whites, it's 13. That's hefty. That's hefty. Yeah. Yeah, That's hefty. Again, that's your minimum. Pre-rot wines normally are in the 14 to 15 range. And again, a lot of this is, A, the grapes being used, as you said, and also just the heat and intensity of sun and ripening in this region. Some other requirements for having that pre-rot DOQ label on your bottle. This is, is one of the few that was really exciting to me. Yeah. So your wine has to be approved by a tasting panel set in place by the regulating body to be called a pre-rot wine. They are really, really, really into protecting their name. Just a note on this. What are your thoughts on this specific requirement? So I did do a lot of research into and actually watched a a documentary, (laughs) an hour and a half long documentary on pre-rot on YouTube. And the winemakers actually seem pretty enthusiastic about this because... Well, A, they get to charge more money for their wine (laughs) because of the reputation of the region. Always a plus. Yeah, always a plus. Um, But also, they seem enthusiastic that they are able to have so much prestige from the labor that they're putting into these wines. So from that perspective, I, I think if it works well for the region, absolutely go for it. Do I think Virginia needs that? Probably not. At least not unless we want to start really heavily regulating how we produce wine but i don't know if we would really succeed if we tried to do that with our climate yeah i don't think that we have enough experience with handling our terroir or exactly if if i could say the voice of our terroir Mm -hmm. hasn't really been established that well yeah but there's also in our last couple of episodes we ended up talking about the science of perception what are your thoughts on how the mutability of perception Mm -hmm. might impact what sort of wine expressions are allowed? It's going to limit them. It's absolutely going to limit them. However, I think as a counterpoint to that disadvantage, the advantage comes in in that because these panels are tasting for a distinct expression of priorat. That's what they're looking for. That's their bias, if you will, and quality. So at least in theory, and I'm not saying this is a perfect system because, I mean, no system is going to be perfect at the end of the day, right? For what it accomplishes or what it is setting out to accomplish, I think that's acceptable. Because what they are looking to do is to make sure when you buy a bottle of Priorat, you are getting a quality product and you can at least have an idea, which is what most EU law in general surrounding wine is for, is you can know, 
here's kind of a rough flavor profile that I can expect from this bottle. And I think that that's good for the consumer. Now, again, there are disadvantages to this. There are growers that might be getting shut out because their wines are atypical, but are still just as good as other Priorat producers. But again, going back to the growers themselves, they do seem to be okay with this system as it is. So I don't want to come in and say, well, you're doing it wrong or you should be doing it this way when the growers themselves seem to be okay with it. Well, and as long as the panel of of people that they are having try this do know winemaking and Mm -hmm. do actually have that uh, note to language connection that allows them to judge quality, then the limitation on expression as long as it's being approved of by the actual growers, by the actual winemakers, it may be a boon mm-hmm. actually to the area because it allows for quality to be the last stop. Yeah. And a lot of these people who sitting on this regulatory body are also producers or viticulturalists or um, winemakers or, or stuff like they're, they're people who know the craft yeah. very well. So it's, it's people who actually have a qualification that is related to wine as mm-hmm. opposed to just being a popular writer or oh yeah these aren't um your typical magazine column writers these are actual people from priorat passionate about priorat trying to expand the reach and the reputation of priorat well, that, that's knows? what it's mainly about and who knows if the expressions allowed might expand in the future but that that main thing that experiential knowledge of quality i think is what is really important about yeah. understanding this key aspect well, actually, from the expression point, uh, that is a really good segue into the labeling terms and how they have set them up and how these two, the expression and the labeling terms. Oh, that's are, my favorite. My absolute. Are... <laughs> Let me cover this section. Gabe. Yeah. Michael specifically said that he, he wanted me to take care of this one. Yeah, it's, it's not. that. So obviously we want to equip you guys to be able to go in and just know what's on the wine labels. It's just. From a research perspective, Priorat is also kind of in flux, so it's hard to find accurate information. So let me try and break this down in as easy to access way as possible. Please. So you have the regional base label of DOQ Priorat. That is what you will see. Or it could just be Priorat if it's on the front label, but on the back, it'll probably say DOQ Priorat. So floor level, DOQ Mm -hmm. Priorat. And that is going to be all the minimum requirements for the entire Priorat growing delineated region. Then we have Vins de Vila. These are those 12 growing regions that I mentioned at the very start of the episode of the overview. These villages are going to be Beymunt del Priorat, Gratayops, El Yoar, La Morena de Monstant, Porrera, Pobaleda, Scalade, Toroja del Priorat, La Vieja Alta, and La Vieja Baixa. We also have two more, and these, from what I understand, are not villages, but they are approved growing regions. And these are going to be Masos de Faustet and Salanas del Molar. A lot of names for a very dense area. <laughs> yeah, yes. And I also do apologize if my Spanish doesn't sound great, but I did, you know. Try my best. Well, you there know, are I'm like just... eight different forms of it, so yeah. you, know, you can only be so strict. <laughs> yes, I, I did look it up, so hopefully the Catalonians did me right <laughs> in their pronunciations that in I tried their, to copy. In their cataloging of their Catalonian dialect. Ah, in their Carthusian cataloging. The Carthusian catalog of Catalonian dialect. Oh my god, this is... 
we're making a children's book yeah, oh God. <laughs> out of this. In, uh, in uh, response to Dr. Seuss, or after Dr. Seuss, we are, yeah. are forming a, a wine Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> yes. So, wines from these villages, and also Muscles de Falstead and Solanus del Molar, these must have at least 60% Garnacha and Caninena in the wine. If it's one or the other of those grapes, it has to be a minimum of 50% of that grape in the wine. Now, because these areas are known for Garnacha, Garnacha is obviously going to be, for most producers, the overwhelming majority of grapes being used in these wines, but also know that some of these international varieties might also be blended in. So then we take a step up and we have what is called parate. And these are wines that are going to be known for their terroir expression. That is what these wines are going for. So this goes back into what you were saying about expression and protecting expression from that tasting panel. This is where you start getting into more of your like premium, premium, mm-hmm. pre-rot wines. After that, we step up again to Vigna Classificata. These are single vineyard wines. 80% of the vines in these vineyards must be at least 20 years old. So these are going to be wines that have a history of winemaking, very solid winemaking behind them already to get this classification. Then we have the Gran Vigna Classificata. This is the highest designation of quality in the country that you can get, and 80% of the vines now must be at least 35 years old in the vineyard. So again, even more upping that quality level because if you don't know older vines produce less fruit but that fruit tends to be better and then we also have an old vines classification and that is veas vignes and that is vines that are from before 1945 or are over 75 years old now that's particularly interesting yeah especially because that crosses phylloxera so these are vines that are going to predate the phylloxera epidemic and survived it these guys are our survivors these are the long haulers these are the heroes of yes now if you listen to that little section closely you might be thinking that kind of sounds like how burgundy classifies their wines by vineyard you would be correct Priorat is diverging a little bit from the rest of Spain. Well, a lot of it, actually, from the rest of Spain. (laughs) Um, Because the rest of Spain, if you're familiar with Rioja, uses aging requirement for most of their hierarchy of wine. Now, at one point, Priorat did use that system. And I'm going to give that system to you now. Sometimes you will encounter that on modern Priorat as well. But again, most of them are moving more towards this terroir-driven expression for their labeling terms. The aging requirements have not been in the official guidelines, the ones I'm about to go over, since 2006. So, we have Hoven, that is unaged wine. We have Crianza, or Criancha, that is going to be a wine that spent two years in the winery. A minimum of that was six months in oak. And the remaining time was in bottle before release. For whites and rosés, that minimum is going to be 18 months in the winery and six months minimum in oak and the remaining time in the winery. We then have Reserva. That means it spent three years in the winery. A minimum of one year was in oak. Obviously, the remaining time in bottle. For whites and rosés, the minimum is one year in the winery 
and six months in oak. For Grand Reserva, we have two years in oak, three years in bottle. Whites and rosés for Grand Reserva are going to be a minimum of two years in the winery and a minimum of six months in oak, the remainder being in the bottle. There is a term that is more recent that might be more commonly found on Priorat labels, which is vino de guarda. That stipulates that a minimum of 12 months was spent in barrel for the wine. Again, to reiterate, these are kind of outdated terms now, but I'm sharing them just in case you do come across them on a Priorat label so you're not confused as to what you're getting in that wine. I know we say this a lot for certain regions, and I know it can be a little irritating when you hear people say this, but you kind of have to look into your producers for your aging information if that's what you're looking for. The thing with Priorat and the direction that it's going is because it is now becoming very terroir-specific, a lot of these producers are employing a very wide range of new oak to old oak ratios, um, different lengths of aging time, what they think is best for their wine coming from their plots of grapes or the co-op that they're buying from. And very Carthusian exactly. thought <laughs> yes. behind things. Yes. So that is kind of the rationale behind why they are no longer really going with this aging system that the rest of Spain is still very strongly rooted in. But going into flavors, it makes a really good wine. Yeah. So Well, it's, it's interesting because, so with your classical Spanish classifications and your wine labeling terms, you do have a consistency of quality that's kind of maintained throughout these regions mm -hmm. because of that. And so these aging requirements, being what they are, allows for a relative consistency so long as you trust the producer. Mm -hmm. The thing about pre-rot, though, is that we already have a control that is going to be telling you that the profile is going to be consistent. So the wine labeling terms being more terroir specific is something that can happen because of that panel. I have gone back and forth in my own head about whether or not that panel was something that was good or something that was bad. But eventually you come to realize that as long as the focus is on quality, and then that quality is being judged on how well it expresses terroir-specific areas, I believe that those metrics actually might be kind of a golden little uh, pursuit, I'll call it. Yeah, and it, it also helps to produce really, really good wine that doesn't... Like, for example, I have drunk a lot of Bordeaux at this point, and... Until you get up into the really high-level Appalachians of Bordeaux, one problem that I will criticize Bordeaux for sometimes, obviously at all price levels there are exceptions to this, not trying to badmouth Bordeaux because I love Bordeaux, but a lot of Omedoc wines taste a lot like other Omedoc wines because the regulations are about your yields and your minimum alcohol and your time in oak and things like that. And that can kind of lead to some homogenization at certain levels in the Appalachian system. I think this system, even though in a way it's more limiting, because now you have to pass a panel to even be able to use that label on your wine, that panel's looking for typicity, yes, but also expression of the unique climate it's grown in. And I think that that is a key distinction that makes it very... Um, 
flexible in a weird way. Yeah, I completely agree with you where you have, you do have stringency, but the stringency isn't like the stringency that we even have here in the Americas. Because here in the Americas, uh, specifically in the U.S., we have more of it being about having, oh, well, well, do you like it or not? And that can be kind of more subjective. When you remove that more, it's it's weird to say, when you remove the more subjective element of tasting where it is about chemosensory accuracy from a group of people who actually understand those regions, yes, it is going to be subject to bias. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be subject to a bias that is perhaps less affected by metrics that shouldn't be there. These metrics are about the terroir. These metrics are about the expression. And so you don't have as many law requirements that are saying, oh, well, this wine would, no matter what the expression of the area is, has to be an oak for this long, which really could overpower certain wines. Exactly. Whereas other wines that may need a little bit more of that new French oak as opposed to split American uh, used oak, they might just need a different way of handling the wines that is better evaluated by a panel that is familiar and passionate about the region. Exactly. So all that being said, why don't we get into what these wines taste like? The wines produced are going to be typically very full-bodied and intense, especially if they're young, they're going to showcase a very good structure, Mm -hmm. but that structure is going to have a high concentration of fruits. They're going to be woodsy. You're going to get a lot of, you know, darker fruits black currant licorice even Mm -hmm. um and once you get into the ones that are going to be aged a bit more those are going to be super intense with fig and tar Mm -hmm. just kind of in there you also get some minerality in a lot of these wines from that licorea soil composition um they're going to be high in alcohol like we said they're going to be deep in color when we talk about the black fruits we are of course talking about like black cherries blackberries plums Mm -hmm. and just super firm tannins and high tannins for a lot of these wines yeah that also can vary by producer grenache as i said earlier doesn't have a lot of tannin in terms of uh compared to carniena uh so pure grenache if they use really heavy extraction methods maybe you might be getting higher tannins um but in general from blending that's where more tannin comes in and about medium acid for structure as well But the most distinctive things is definitely just going to be their complexity and mm-hmm. their minerality, especially for and that concentration of that flavor. Yeah. Yeah. As far as the whites are concerned, uh, we don't want to focus too much on these guys. All of these are going to be prepared in like stainless steel. So you can see these as being a much lighter style. They're going to be used as an aperitif. They're pretty good with seafood and salad, um, but you're never going to age these guys. These are consumed young much lower alcohol, fresh acidity, very crisp, kind of green apples, pears, citrus. And there also is a very small amount of sweet fortified wines made in Priorat as well. The sweet fortified wines, do we know what uh, do we know what they were made of? I didn't actually come across anything there. I, I, I did not on- either. I'm going to make it. Did an- we both ignore it because it's sweet wine? Well, I didn't particularly look into it because it's such a small amount of the production that and these wines, I can almost guarantee you are going to be so expensive, more so than regular Priorat, that they're going to just be out of most people's price range to begin with. However, I can make an educated guess and tell you that the Muscat of Alexandria and the Muscat Apetit Grand are going to be the primary grapes in those wines, because I do know for sure one of the wines that is producing Priorat is a Vindu Noctrel. 
and that is uh, normally a Muscat-based wine. And Muscat is the basis for a lot of fortified wines globally, not just in Europe. So that's my reasoning for that. Yeah. Uh, and, and Muscat is very perfumey, orange peel, um, honeysuckle, floral nose kind of wine. So as far as the, the actual flavor profile, though, we tried to find <sighs> we did. a Priorat to yeah. try. So I actually had a very specific Priorat in mind that Wegmans used to sell that I have bought before and tried. It is the Laurentia Priorat. That is a really solid wine. And I was really hoping to find it, and apparently they don't carry it anymore. So what we ended up with was the Borsal Tres Picos. And this is going to be from Bodegas Borsal. And that is going to be from the Campo de Borja Dio. Now, the reason I chose this is this is from the Spanish region of Aragon, which is the region in Spain literally bordering Catalonia. So there is still a similarity in the climate. Also, this wine is 100% garnacha. So we still are maintaining that great makeup character for the wine yeah similar climate maybe not quite as similar as um it, it's not a one for one it's not a one for one um but it was kind of one of those looking at it you know of course i'm looking at 30 riojas of all levels and i'm like a rioja is tempranillo that is not going to be a suitable substitute uh, but part of the reason why I wanted to find a substitute was, as for you, the listener, if you want to try these wines and you can't find one, as we have encountered, something approximate that could whet your appetite for the real deal. And I do think in trying this wine that in the limited, very, very limited pre-rot exposure that I have, it's a good reminiscent wine. Again, it's not a one for one. This wine doesn't have the minerality and the smokiness that a Priorat has, and it doesn't have that tar either. Um, however, uh, Michael, what, what have you gotten from this wine? Because I know we've been sipping on this for the whole episode and have, have both actually been enjoying it a lot. Oh, yeah. No, I've, I've actually, it's a very indulgent wine. It's interesting because like this area in Spain, it's primarily going to be influenced by the Pyrenees Mountains. Mm hmm. So, oh, sorry, not to interrupt you, but that was another reason why I chose this is this is grown on mountainsides. And exactly. so that would reflect those steep slopes in Priorat. So we, we do have this kind of more arid mountainous climate, which I think it was a good reasoning on your part, actually, mm -hmm. when when you're trying to select something as far as this one is concerned. So looking at the color, uh, we are looking at a very, very dark purple, especially for Grenache, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is this is a very this, dark purple. This I can just by the flavor profile, I can tell you they probably used a pretty intense extraction method, probably some pump overs. Yeah. Oh, and also we are at fifteen percent alcohol, so like Priorat, we are looking, but it doesn't really it doesn't, taste. I, I don't like get a lot 15. of that heat. And that is another thing about Priorat is if you were listening to us talk about you know a lot of Priorat is at least fourteen percent. Priorat wines are designed with that in mind. So the winemakers know that and the concentration of fruit and whatever oak regimen that they're using, they're using to concentrate the flavors enough to where that alcohol still is going down smoothly. That is something to point out about Priorat. So don't be intimidated by the alcohol percentage and that being too burny or hot. 
And I kind of get some of the heat on my nose more than more than yeah. anything else because, of course, when you have a certain threshold of alcohol, even your nose is going to start to burn a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I do get that from this. Um, certainly, I'm getting black currant on this guy. Uh, I'm also getting a bit of a floral element to it. A little um, bit of like violet. Violet, yeah. yeah. Uh, but also, I'm getting black plum. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's there's plenty of that going on here. I said earlier. I got some almost uh, elderberry, black yeah. elderberry extract Definitely. kind of on the back of my palate. Are you getting any of that on the aroma? Not really. And that's why it kind of surprised me when I tasted it. I could see maybe elderberry uh, blossom, actually. I could see that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's kind of like toggling between violet and elderberry mm -hmm. blossom. It's that denser, darker floral aroma. Yeah. There's something distinctly figgy about this. Exactly. And yeah. it's not it's not quite fig it's like it's figgy mm -hmm. in the way that the fruits are expressed yeah because i i want to refrain from saying jammy because that kind of implies like california cab think dried fig but like the type of dried figs that still have a bit of moisture to them yeah definitely not jammy definitely not sugary no just kind of like just concentrated dark and concentrated yeah and that's i think that's kind of like the overarching profile of this is dark and concentrated black fruits and that is kind of the the baseline for most pre-rot wines as well is so that laurentia that i mentioned that has this character but the laurentia at least from my recollection of it i wish i had it in front of me i really wish i had it in front of me because that's a delicious wine um <laughs> was it, it has a more mineral bent to it again from that licorea soil and also smokier I wouldn't say Lil Laurentia had quite fully blown tar, but it was definitely getting in that smoky, earthy, sweet, earthy kind of thing where this wine isn't really showing that tertiary character as much. This is still very much in the oak and fruit category, not if, quite herbal or earthy like more pre-rot wines are going to lean toward. Yeah, the feral look that came over Gabe's face when he was talking <laughs> about that wine, by the way, was just a sight to behold. It's um, a good wine. If you can find it, I would highly recommend picking up a bottle. It's only, uh, at least at Wegmans, I want to say it was in the 25, mid-20s range. It so not super expensive. So you mentioned the fact that this doesn't really have a lot of the tertiary. And I would I would agree with you. It's almost like it's bordering on it, though, because of the yeah. harmony between the fruits and the oak. Well, and if you gave this another two years, I think you would really start to see some of the development for the fruit getting to that dried, fully dried character, more of that um, dustiness and that earthiness that can come out. Well, it's interesting, though, because even in, in this moment, now that I'm kind of getting past the initial bit of figginess... I'm almost reading that figginess is now just a nice interaction between the fruits and the more kind of vanilla woodsy mm -hmm. contribution from that oak. Yeah. And so I it's harmonious. Yeah. And I actually pulled this up on the importer website, which is imported by Winebow. I haven't seen this, by the way. This did have, they're saying five to six months in new French oak. There so we go. a short amount of time in new oak. So it is not overly oaked, but it still has that presence of spice and interplay with the fruits. This also had a cold maceration of one to two days in a steel tank before fermentation. So that oh. is also additional extraction of flavor and color that yeah. we're getting, which helps explain why this is so dark. 
this is a delightful wine. I <laughs> would love to know what it was like to have it from Purat. Right. So let's get into prices real quick because this wine was twenty dollars. Now prove every penny. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I mean, technically it was nineteen ninety nine, but you know, essentially twenty dollars. Okay, so worth every penny plus one. Exactly. <laughs> um, Priorat wines, as you've probably picked up by now, Priorat as a region is focusing on a very high quality reputation. That is reflected in the price point. Priorat, again, comparing it to Burgundy, does have a higher point of entry. In order to start getting really solid wines from Priorat. I would say you're spending at least $25. And again, that Laurentia was like right on that line. It was in that mid-20 range. To start getting into the really solid Priorat wines, a lot of people will say at least $40. A lot of Priorat wines can very easily go well over $100, even into the $1,000 range for yeah. a bottle. To Priorat's credit, a lot of that is it is so labor-intensive to produce wine here that the startup cost is automatically higher for most wineries. On top of that, you have your reputation. Reputation in the wine world allows you to charge more for your wine de facto. And people will because you want to make money with your product, right? That being said, though, I do think a lot of pre rot wines are worth the price point. Under $100? <laughs> I mean, the single vineyard and estate bottled ones, those are the ones that are going to be like 60 to 200 Yeah. But even without those single state vineyards, your village level, even just the base level priorat, there are already so many regulations and caretaking measures within just the base level priorat that if you are intimidated by that price point, just go out and find one in that, you know, 20 to 40 range if you're willing to spend that and just try a base level one. And if you like it, explore more. Um, if you like deep, rich, complex reds. This is kind of the cream of the crop for that profile of wine. So that's Priorat. That is Priorat. We hope that you have enjoyed your time with us. Uh, we are working on some new stuff and we wanted to tell you very briefly. Yes. We're not going to get into all of those ideas right now, but please but just be aware that we are. Keep an eye out. Follow us at LaidbackLush on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok for sneak previews if there's anything that you would like to see please do dm us any questions that you have um and we will be glad to be able to talk just in you. general just in general just say hey how you doing yeah maybe ask us about our day once in a while all right? yeah guys come on like it's it's nice to do all this work for you while you remain voiceless and reactionless <laughs> on the no i'm just kidding uh, we appreciate you all we we do appreciate you all but again, thank you guys so much for joining us for our dive into the Priorat region of yes. Spain. We hope that you are able to use this information in order to enrich your own experience. And we look forward to talking to you next time. Yes. Thank you guys so much. And cheers. Cheers.